Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27, as we continue to work our way through this book. It's on page nine, or 232 in the Black Pew Bible. 1 Samuel tells us of the institution of kingship among the people of God in Israel. Last week, we saw the first king, Saul, privately anointed by Samuel as king of Israel. This morning, we see Saul publicly identified as the king of Israel. And since Christians, and you may be wondering, what would any of this Old Testament history have to do with me? Since Christians are people who live under a king, and since everybody belongs to the class of people who have a king, the true king, God is king, Though we don't have the first king of Israel anymore, we have the true king of kings, Jesus, come. There are things here for us about Saul, the first king, and about Jesus, the true king, and about how we respond to him. So what do we learn about kingship from Saul, or uh, the kingship of Saul? What do we learn about the kingship of Jesus? And what do we learn about how we respond to our king? These are the questions before us as we turn to God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Let me invite you to pay attention to the word of God. Now, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians... And from the hand of all the kings that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God. Who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. 
but he held his peace. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, thank you that the true King has come, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you promised uh, that uh, not a jot or a tittle of all the law and the prophets would disappear. Uh, You did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we pray that you'd help us to see how, help us to see you, help us to examine our own hearts before you, and be gracious to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you my outline first. Four points. Uh, they all start with R. A word of rebuke. Just kind of as you see the text flowing. There's a word of rebuke in the beginning, verses 17 to 19. There's a king revealed in verses 20 to 24. There are kingship regulations, verse 25. And then the response of the people at the end, verses 26 and 27. So we'll have an occasion to consider our own Response, But first, consider uh, a word of rebuke, or at least the prophet and his rebuke for the people for rejecting God as their king. You see this in verses 17 to 19, and we'll come back to the text in a moment. But let me set it up. On July 31st, 2008, the tiny South Pacific nation of Tonga crowned its new king, uh, King George Tupu V. A sense, I believe, uh, replaced by the sixth. But the three-day coronation then, uh, it involved a formal ball, a military parade, a traditional kava drinking ceremony, a fireworks display, a rugby match, an open-air torchlight music event, and a beauty contest. The cost for all those events was about 1.6 million pounds. The, that uh, caused complaint. Uh, in the nation, which had over 40% poverty by rate. Uh, But the government and the majority of the people defended the expenditure because they saw it as an important uh, thing to uphold the traditional culture of the island nation, and this was indeed a milestone for them. Well, the Tongans' insistence on the importance of this event is backed up by a story like this. We'll see here and at the end of chapter 11. Israel's elders have come to Samuel and said, we want a king. And God revealed to Samuel his choice of Saul, son of Kish. We saw that last week. But there was still need for a, a formal public recognizing of the king. Everything so far had been done privately between Samuel and Saul. These kind of Formal public events call for a certain kind of protocol, as you can imagine. I mean, this is national news. This is big stuff. There are times, though, when those protocols sometimes need to be amended. Let me give you an example of that. Ralph Davis tells the story. This is not about the installation of a king, but of a minister. Same idea. In the 18th century in Scotland... The General Assembly of the Church of uh, Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, had the power to impose an unwanted minister on a local congregation. You'll be relieved to know that 
our brand of Presbyterian doesn't allow that kind of thing. We, you don't get a minister imposed from the outside. You actually voted for me, sorry. In 1773, however, the assembly directed a presbytery to install a minister, Mr. David Thompson, as minister of a parish near Sterling. The presbytery's moderator didn't want to do it. His name, Robert Findlay, but he was accountable to the assembly to do so, and at the installation service, he addressed Mr. Thompson and informed him that he and the other ministers were only there because the General Assembly had directed them to be there. Moreover, he said to the man, over 600 households in this congregation voted against you, and every elder in this church voted against you except for one. And then he said to the man, give it up, walk away. Don't pursue this call. But Thompson was not the kind of man to give it up, and he directed Findlay in a quiet but stern voice to obey the orders of your superiors, and Findlay was obliged to do so. So in a rather perfunctory way, he simply announced that Thompson was the new pastor, according to the authority of the General Assembly, closed the service without even praying for the minister or the congregation, nor giving the benediction. Just wrapped it up. We're done. Now, obviously, Finley violated polite ceremonial etiquette in a pastor's insulation. We might say he did more than that. But he did it to make a point about truth. He broke protocol to call attention to something that was extraordinary, that a man would impose himself upon the people. That's how Samuel reasoned here in a a different way, but but he breaks protocol here. Uh, He breaks protocol when he gathers the nation at Mizpah for the public unveiling of their new king. Verse 17, Mizpah is the very place where Samuel had assembled the nation for their mass repentance. We saw back in chapter 7. When they had gone astray, he brought them together at Mizpah, called them to repent, and they repented. And God gave them victory over the Philistines. And he brings them back to that same spot as if to have them remember their prior repentance and to give them an opportunity to repent now before it's too late. You might have expected the public assembly to call for polite, bland, formal behavior, cheery affirmations, and empty speeches. Instead, Samuel took the occasion to rebuke the nation for even wanting this king, for its unbelief and distrust of God, their king. And his rebuke is in two parts, verse 18 and then verse 19. Verse 18, notice he reminds them of all that God had done for them. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. You see what he's saying? As a nation, you have been oppressed by the peoples around you. You were oppressed in Egypt. You've been oppressed since you got here by the Moabites and the Ammonites. And now you're oppressed by the Philistines. But God has been faithful to you, he says. God has rescued you when you called upon him. He's been your deliverer. He's been your savior. Now you're rejecting him as king. And so he's, he's highlighting their ingratitude to them, to God, and their foolishness, frankly. 
And let me just apply that and say how like the church they are. They have no other hope but the Lord. The world doesn't want them. The world doesn't believe in their God. Their neighbors don't. The world is oppressing them. And they want to be like their neighbors. They want to be just like the world. They want a king like all the nations of the world. That's why they want this guy. They don't want their true savior to be their king. Now they aren't explicitly asking to become pagans. But they are asking for a political approach that would make them like all the other nations. And in fact, it's so stark that Samuel says, you're, you're throwing off God. You've rejected your God. And then verse 19, you see the second part. But today, Samuel goes on, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. The demand to be, we might say, worldly or like all the peoples of the world was, in fact, a rejection of their king. Now, let me just pause there. Don't you, Christian friends of mine, find in your own heart this kind of tension at times? You want Jesus to save you. You've looked to Jesus to save you. You're fully persuaded Jesus has saved you. But time and again, you find in your heart a reluctance to submit to his rule, to bow to his command, to do what your king says. We're so much like Israel in this. The Apostle James had to rebuke the church in his day. The Apostle James in James 4 verse 4, like I think Samuel at Mizpah, says, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Christians who desire to be like the world, just like the world in every way, and throw off God as their king are like the Israelites then who desired a human king just so they could be like everybody else. They wanted to be ruled by man and not by God. Now, you can imagine um, when Samu gets done with this speech that perhaps he might have paused before he moved on. You can imagine him kind of looking at the faces of the crowd and asking, is anybody responding to what I'm saying? Guys, we have an opportunity here. Okay, We haven't gone fully forward. You want to repent? You want to ask the Lord for mercy and forgiveness? But they don't repent. And so uh, the choosing of Saul as their first king is an act of God's judgment against his people it's disciplinary in that way why do i say that the prophet hosea says in hosea chapter 13 verse 11 god says i gave you a king in my anger now we praise the lord he gave us the true king in his mercy but this first king was given as the people were throwing him off and they got the king they asked for it's not that Saul's being punished here, but the people are. He's disciplining them. So Samuel doesn't smile and croon, says Ralph Davis. So glad to see all of you here today. <laughs> Happy occasion brings us together. He rebukes. And let me just apply that. Sometimes when we gather as the people of God to hear the word of God, the sermon doesn't seem like uh, comes across as something that should give us a peaceful, easy feeling. Sometimes when God's word comes to us, it troubles our conscience. It, it, it calls us to repentance. 
It invites a moment of reflection. The word of God always comes to us and says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which means you've got to acknowledge you don't think right, you don't think straight, nor do you obey properly. But God, in his grace, holds on to you. And in his grace and truth, he wants to teach us all more and more to live under the subduing, glorious, gracious, kind, powerful, almighty rule of Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to see then. Samuel's rebuke. The second is uh, the king revealed, verses 20 to 24. This is an interesting scenario here. God reveals the king who satisfies the people's desires. Samuel brings all the tribe together. And then through a system of lots, it says, the king is revealed. The lot was something like... Perhaps you might put a bunch of stones in a basket with a name on each stone, and then you pick one out at random, you know, kind of a blind poll. Or, or the lots could have been something like the rolling of dice. We're not entirely sure how in each scenario it would have worked, but something like that is happening here. Proverbs 18, verse 18 says, The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Well, the lot is going to decide who's the king, which means God is going to decide who's the king. Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so the lots are cast and the uh, tribe of Benjamin is chosen. And then the lots are cast and the clan of the Mac. Trites or Matrites is chosen, and then from that clan, the lot is cast, and Saul, the son of Kish, is chosen. God clearly identifies Saul as the first king of Israel. And by the way, uh, just in case um, on your exams this week you decide to cast lots for the right answer, <laughs> I don't commend that to you. Uh, arguably, very arguably, lots became obsolete as a method of discerning God's will. The last time we see them in the Bible is in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when the church had to decide who would be the next disciple, and they chose Matthias, or the lot did, to replace Judas, who had left. But after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we are to be led by the Spirit of God under the fully revealed Word of God, and we are to make our decisions Uh, as wisdom issues and in consultation with elders and such but in any case if you want to ask me about that later do so but if you want to roll the dice for you know your exam i suppose you're welcome to have at it i think if you answer c often enough is that the sat or act maybe you'll do well uh so there's the lots called same or saul is chosen but there's a problem end of verse 21 imagine the scene right And now, for God's choice of king of Israel, Saul. This is like that scene from The Sound of Music. The Von Trapp family singers. You know, y'all are with me on this? Nobody comes out. Where's Saul? Everybody's asking, where is the guy, right? He can't be found. Has anybody seen Saul? Saul. Well... Uh, to quote another, Saul seems as lost as his father's donkeys had been in the last chapter. Shouldn't, we might ask, Saul have been standing by? He knows he's the anointed king of Israel. Last week, 
Samuel anointed him king. And just to make sure Saul understood that this was really from God, he was given three signs to assure him. So he's had the prophet of God anoint him with oil. He's had the word of God assure him by fulfilling signs. He's now had the lot of God confirm publicly he's the man, but it seems here the work of God held little interest for him. That's the way I read it. Some would say humility here. I think more cowardice here. Reluctance, reluctance to take on the work of God. He rejected their calling to serve God as their king, and God gave them a king who was reluctant to serve the people as their king. The beginning here does not bode well as we, in days ahead, will look at the end of his life. And people ask then, is there somebody else? We're supposed to be looking for, verse 22, they inquire the Lord. The Lord answers. We don't know exactly how that went down, but the Lord tells them exactly where he is. He's hiding. He's hiding in the baggage. And they bring him out. and uh, Samuel stands him up before the people. Wouldn't it have been interesting to see and hear Samuel in that moment? Look at the crowd, verse 24. And say to this tall, strapping, we learned back in the last chapter, very handsome, very tall. He stands a, a, a head above the shoulders of any man in Israel. And say to them, do you see whom the Lord chose? There's none like him among all the people. Here he is, the man you wanted, the human king you asked for. So you could be like all the nations of the world. Isn't he tall and handsome? Isn't he outwardly impressive? The very things you value. They get the kind of king here that they deserve. One who is like what they want to be. Outwardly impressive. Like all the nations of the world at least. One who is like what they are. Reluctant to serve God and the people. And how unlike then the true king how unlike the true king whom we don't deserve whom we get by grace as a gift who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him says the prophet isaiah he was despised and rejected by men And yet he set his face to Jerusalem to bear our griefs, to carry our sorrows, to pour out his soul to death, to bear the sin of many, to make us righteous in him. How unlike this king revealed is the true king when he's revealed. Now, thirdly, there are kingdom regulations The king is responsible to obey God's rule. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. What's this mean, rights and duties? It's one word. It's something like regulations. The idea is that there there are expectations placed upon this king. He has certain privileges and he has certain limitations set upon him by God himself. He is not to be the absolute sovereign over these people. God remains king, is what Samuel is saying. And God's law 
will rule and govern even the king of Israel. God doesn't abandon his, shall we say, work or job or responsibility that he's taken upon himself to be the king of his people. No, he says, this human king shall not be a tyrant. There are rights and there are duties. Probably Samuel wrote something like what we find in Deuteronomy 17. I quoted to you, I believe, last week where Moses tells Israel, now when you do get a king, when you do get one, you know, he can't just pile up marriages and money and military might, but he should do what? He should write a copy of this law. And he should read it all the days of his life. That he should do what's in it. It it may have been something like that. Samuel, in other words, is not placing the authority of the king over the law. But he is placing God's law over the king. Now this is, this passage and this idea has had a long and important um, place in the history of uh, political philosophy in the world. Uh, and, 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 you know, very important ways. In, in 1567, John Knox, the Protestant reformer and founder of Presbyterianism in many ways in Scotland, pointed to this passage to show that earthly monarchs are not a lot of themselves, but they are still subject to God. So that when Mary, Queen of Scots, had uh, very likely both committed adultery and been complicit in the murder of her own husband, Uh, John Knox said she ought to be arrested and prosecuted and tried, and if found guilty, she ought to get the penalty that the law called for, which was execution. And some people scratch their heads at that. The king is the law. The king can do, the queen can do whatever she wants. But no, Knox said, she can't. She ought to obey the law. And certainly the law of God. Anyway, uh, uh, roughly 80 years later, the Scottish uh, pastor Samuel Rutherford in 1644 wrote the classic book Lex Rex, the law of kingship. He wrote to oppose the idea of Rex Lex, the king is the law. Um, And he based that on Deuteronomy 17 and he referred to Samuel placing Saul under the word of God argued then that the kings of Scotland didn't have the right to do whatever they wanted contrary to the law of God. Um, and in our own founding as a nation, the principle that the law should govern our leaders and not leaders being a law unto themselves to do whatever they whimsically wish. The law uh, should, should govern. At any rate, here, Saul is accountable to God And if kings are accountable to God, how much more so the people of God are accountable to God, which reminds us that we are all called to obey our king and his law for us. Now, there are Christians who, reading the New Testament, will pick up on Paul's words in Romans uh, where he says things like, we are not under law but under grace. And misunderstanding those things, think that grace somehow... Uh, frees us from obedience. Grace means we don't have to care about or do the law of God, the Ten Commandments. But that's absurd. The law summarized is love. And our Savior obeyed the law perfectly because he was a perfectly loving person and God wants to make us like our Savior, a perfectly loving person. And what would that look like? It would look like, well, not stealing your neighbor's wife or robbing him from his property. 
or bearing false witness about him in public or in the court of law or being content with what you have. You understand that we are still, as people under the law, not to save us, but as a guide for life, to tell us how to love. Paul, in these passages where he seems to speak harshly against the law, is speaking against the idea that it could be the standard by which if you accomplish it, you yourself would be righteous before God. Because none of us has done that. None of us keeps the law. You can't earn credit with God by doing that. You can't earn eternal life with God. You don't get brownie points for obeying the law. None of us have obeyed the law. You know what the law can do? It can just tell you where you're at. It's like a thermometer in that way. A thermometer tells you how warm or cool it is outside. It doesn't change the weather. You bring a friend over and you're comfortably seated drinking sweet tea in your air conditioning. And it's, you know, July in Arkansas. And you look out at the fence where you have a big thermometer and you can see how hot it is. And it says 95. And you say, I don't want to go out there. And your friend says, 95 degrees. Wow, that's really hot. And you say, yeah, I know it's so hot. And I don't know why I've got a thermometer out there. Well, that'd be absurd. Your thermometer doesn't affect the weather. It tells you what the weather is. And so likewise, the law of God can't help you obey the law of God or change you. But the law tells you where you're at. It tells you you fall short of obedience to the law of God. And you are in big trouble without a Savior. How then can we be righteous if we don't obey the law? Well, there is one who has. And it wasn't the first king of Israel, but it is the true king of Israel. He was a king who kept God's law. The apostle Paul says in Galatians 4 that he was a man born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That we might be receive, receive adoption as the sons and daughters of God. He redeems us by fulfilling the law on our behalf. Jesus says in John 8, I speak just as the Father taught me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Do not think, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I always do the will of my Father in heaven. He says, here I am, O God, I've come to do your will. And he does it. And then he dies By bearing the curse of lawbreakers. Galatians 3. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. And do them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. So that our hope, our only hope is in Jesus. The law keeper who suffered the lawbreakers judgment. And so we're righteous, friends, before the law, not because we've done it, but by the grace of God as a gift through accounting the righteousness of Jesus to us. So we're justified by faith alone, not by works, because our true king, unlike the first king, kept all the duties and responsibilities of king. And then the final thing is then how then do we respond? How did they respond? Notice that some of them received him, but some went rogue against God's king. Verse 26 and 27. I say God's king because God has anointed and appointed and declared him to be the king. And then when God gives you a king, 
You're not to rebel against that king. Here, some didn't. They welcomed him. Notice verse 26. Some went, Saul went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. These men of valor sided with him. People that their hearts have been touched by God. Some, though, rejected him. Wicked men, verse 27, some worthless fellows said, how then can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. I want you to think about the response here because it's actually a repeatable pattern in Scripture. I'm not saying that Saul is a type of Christ, but he is certainly a pattern of king and kingship. And Jesus is the true king and his is the true kingship. And there's a repeatable pattern here that the king of Israel causes division. He's the occasion for division among the people of God. Even Jesus said, don't think I have come to bring peace on earth, but division. The Israelites rejected Saul. A thousand years later, more Israelites rejected Jesus. And they said essentially the same thing. How can this man save us? We will not have this man reign over us. And so I ask you, what about you? It's possible for you to be in this room every Sunday. To go through the motions of Christianity, the motions and rituals of worship, and yet all the while you reject King Jesus. Maybe you say in your heart of hearts, how could this man really save me? You don't worship him. You don't think he's worth much. You harbor a deep suspicion of him and you turn your back on him. There's a man who came into the main hotel in Baltimore around 200 years ago and he walked in and he spoke to the proprietor and he asked for a room and the proprietor said to him, sorry, sir, there's no room here. And uh, pretending not to hear the proprietor, he asked again and the man said, we have no room for you. So he turned on his heel and he walked out the door and he called for his horse and he rode away and then A few moments later, a wealthy businessman came in and told the proprietor that the man whom he sent away was Thomas Jefferson, the vice president of the United States of America. You can look at Jesus Christ, though you're here, and say, he's not worth much. What can he do to help me? What can he do to save me? Jesus is just a dirty farmer. Thomas Jefferson. Jesus is just a calloused hand carpenter. He's just that carpenter's son from Nazarene. Who is he? What does he matter? He's just a Jew from 2,000 years ago. He's no big deal. He's a member of some minority race. He's been dead, crucified, executed by a government. How can he help me? What does he care about me? And so you don't value him and you don't trust him. Or maybe you do. Why did some not despise Saul? And why did they embrace him? Did you hear the refrain? Because God had touched their hearts. So it is for us too. When your inclination is against God, it's simply a manifestation of your own sinful heart. God doesn't make you reject him. He creates no evil in your heart. He doesn't force you to say, no, I don't want you. You do what you want to do. You go against him. It's your bent. It's your nature. It's your own sinfulness. It is your own fault. But when you receive him, why do you do that? 
when you welcome him. Why? It's not to your credit. It's not that you're superior to others. It's not that you're spiritually more, more spiritually minded than other people. That you're just really in tune with the universe and the way others are. That you really care about spiritual things and people other people don't. No, not, you're not more righteous than other people. You and I have the same wicked heart. It's not to our credit when we welcome Jesus as king. It's due to this, that God touches the heart. So the evil that we do is from us. The good that we do is from God. Are you drawn to the beauty and the love and the truth and the patience and the kindness and the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Are you attracted to him? Are you looking to him to save you, crying out to him, receiving him as your savior and your king? I hope so. Reject this king and it's on you. Receive this king, and that's the gift of God. Notice here in the passage how they responded. Those who despised him brought him no gift. Evidently, those who embraced him did give the king gifts. And so it was also with Jesus. By and large, the Jewish people rejected him. They cried out, we will not have this man reign over us, crucify him. And they took his cloak and they took his tunic, they took his clothes and they divided it. And they tried to take his dignity and they took away his life. But even from his birth, there were those whose hearts God had touched. Men from the east, wise men. And they came asking, where is he who's born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. And having found him, they gave him gifts. Shall we not join them, those wise men, and offer up the sacrifice of praise to Jesus, saying, Long live the King. And shall we not then also do good and share what we have, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God when offered from thankful hearts, To the king who sacrificed himself for us. May we be that kind of people by his grace. Let's pray. Father, grant that by the work of your Holy Spirit. Gift us, we pray, with affection for Jesus. May we see him as he is, worthy of glory, worthy of praise, worthy of our lives. Forgive all our failures of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.